Hi, I'm Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF podcast. At MTF Stockholm last year, we ran the Splice Trackathon, kind of a 24-hour hackathon for music producers. Winners of the Trackathon had their songs compiled and released as an EP to raise money for charity, and there are some fantastic songs in there. The calibre is just incredible. Just listening to the EP makes a difference, and you can also buy it to download. The links are at musictechfest.net slash trackathon. So the overall winner of the live trackathon event was Ruben Svensson, who produced the song Cold with Nina Butler, and Ruben got to choose the charity that any proceeds would go to. He took that responsibility really seriously and went and did a whole bunch of research before coming back with Musicians Without Borders as his chosen charity, which, of course, we thought was absolutely spot on. When we got in touch with Musicians Without Borders to let them know what was happening, they were really excited. It's such a great fit for what they do. I had a chat to the charity's founder and director, Laura Hassler, about what they do, why it matters, and where it comes from. Now, Laura spent her life as a peace activist and grew up in the heart of the American civil rights movement. She started Musicians Without Borders 20 years ago as a way to bring together her activism and her love for Balkan folk music. On the line from the Netherlands, this is Laura Hassler. Laura, thanks so much for joining us on the MTF podcast. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what Musicians Without Borders is for? Sure. Well, Musicians Without Borders is sort of at the place where music and, and peace building, peacemaking, social change intersect. Um, so we, we began, um, this is our 20th anniversary this year. We began 20 years ago uh, during the last of the Balkan Wars in Kosovo. And um, with, with the idea, a number of us were musicians who had uh, basically used music within our own societies to connect people across lines of culture and history and their past. And um, personally, I, I have uh, an early background in the peace and civil rights movements of, of a number of decades ago. And so the idea was, well, could we actually use music as a tool for reconciliation, peace building, and helping to heal the wounds of war. And, and that is our core business. Right. So it's not specifically about uh, using music to end war or to um, heal during war, but it's once war has happened uh, to, to sort of bridge the boundaries between different places. Is that the idea? Yes, um, we are. I mean, mainly also just because when war is going on, it's quite complicated to to um, intervene as musicians but uh, we are for example working in Palestine where there is active conflict going on or active violence in any case most of the places where we're working are post-war some of them are quite a long time after the war as in El Salvador or uh, Rwanda others um, you know in in the Balkans we've been there since really since the the year after the war in Kosovo ended so that was quite immediately post-war right. and and you know many of many of this type of conflicts the war stops the shooting stops there's some kind of accord but very often um, the effects of the war go on for years and often the conflict is still going on it's just going on at another level so a, a lot of what we see our role as doing, and, and then we're not, we're, we're not working on huge types of mega projects, we're working on grassroots projects to kind of slowly sow the seeds of peace in various ways in different places. So whether that's 
bringing together young people um, in an ethnically divided uh, city, um, bringing, bringing those young people together through rock music, for example, which we do in Kosovo, um, as a way of literally bringing together people who have been divided along ethnic lines by a war, or whether it's uh, reaching out to um, young people and children who were affected by HIV as a result of sexual violence during, during the genocide in Rwanda. Um, there are different approaches, but they all have that common denominator of, of using music as a way of giving a space for people to heal and to reconnect. Right. I, I can imagine sort of the cynic approach to this would be, well, surely music is just entertainment and distraction. Uh, what, what genuinely good thing can it do in this context? What would your kind of response to something like that be? Well, um, as a musician and also as someone who's read and studied and met many people uh, who, who are experts on this, I, I know that music's basic property, which is also why it why people find it such a source of entertainment and, and relaxation. But the fact is that all human beings have music in them. It's in our DNA, it's in our bodies, and it's in every culture. And music has, um, for all of time, been a way that societies have, have been able to connect, that people have been able to connect with each other. If you just look at the ways that music is used in um, so many societies around the world as something to do when you're working, when you're playing with children, when you're mourning or celebrating or grieving, or it, music is the means of expressing human emotions, and therefore we, we connect with each other for that reason. And in, in Western societies, um, which, which are pretty much commodified, where almost everything has been commodified, music has also been commodified, but the deeper reason that that's possible and the deeper level of what music can do is something that's very fundamental to human connection. And that's the level that we're working at. And how does that play out in terms of the actual sort of on the ground? Do you have a team that sort of parachutes in, does some music and then disappears again? Or is it about uh, building capacity in the places that, uh, that you work? Mostly it's that second. Mostly we work in uh, long-term collaborative projects with local musicians and local organizations. And um, so, for example, I, I, I mentioned bringing young people together in a divided city. In um, Mitrovica, which is an ethnically divided city in the north of Kosovo, was left after the Kosovo War divided literally along the banks of a river with ethnic Serbs on one side of the city and Albanians on the other. And this was a city that before the war had had a very um, kind of booming rock music scene and so we've established a rock music school where uh, young people can meet each other. We have two separate branches on both sides, but we bring them out of the city to meet each other. We form mixed bands. We work to keep those bands going together. But that's a process that takes years. And so uh, uh, this last October, the Mitrovica Rock School celebrated its 10th anniversary. And uh, while it's become an independent institution, it's still Musicians Without Borders that's behind it. And, uh, and that is this sort of um, helping to guide and steer that process. In some projects, we're, we're only somewhere for a few years, as in El Salvador, for example, where we're training music teachers at the request of UNICEF and the Ministry of Education. We're training music teachers to use music as a tool to help children to feel safe and to, to develop their um, sense of self and their sense of community within the context of a, a country which is really 
suffering very much under the burden of, of gang violence and criminal violence, and um, which is also a legacy of the, of the war in El Salvador. That's a, a more limited intervention. But most of our own projects are long-term. Right. I mean, I guess over the last 20 years, you've had some real highlights of, I guess, sort of kind of landmark projects that uh, have, have made a real difference. Can you tell us about a couple of those? Sure. Well, one of them is the one I just mentioned, the, the Rock School in Mitrovica, which is still going strong. We've also been on the West Bank in uh, Palestine, working with marginalized children and youth for a very long time. And there we've trained several hundred um, school teachers and social workers to use music in the class to help build children's sense of self and and their um, their connection with with other children and with the community. We've also worked there with rappers um, and and given them the, the the both the training and also the facilities to be able to become teachers. So they become teachers of rap to young children, giving children a way to express themselves through poetry and rhythm. Um, we've also worked there uh, with with uh, drummers. We work together with an organization called Sounds of Palestine, which basically teaches children to play instruments and sing in choirs. So it's all about using music in many, many different ways uh, to to help create a sense of community and build a culture of nonviolence. Right. And then Rwanda is also a long-term project. We've been there now uh, since 2012. And uh, there we've trained more than 150 young people who are living with HIV as community mu music leaders to work with children who are also affected by HIV. And there we've also trained a cohort of uh, young musicians working in a refugee camp where 50,000 refugees from Burundi are housed. Um, so that's really working with very marginalized young people and children to give hope through music. Other projects might be shorter term. For example, we're now um, working in, um, in a couple of European countries together with larger NGOs where we're going in and training groups of local musicians to be able to work with refugees who are on the move in Southern Europe, especially in Italy and Greece, and now also in Bosnia. Right. Okay. So, so how did this start? And was this the idea that you had uh, that you're doing now all the way along or has it changed over time? Well, um, it started actually, it started actually with a concert. Um, it, I was, I was working at that point as a, a, a choir director and a leader of vocal groups and ensembles. And, um, and one of my great loves was always singing folk music from the Balkans. And we were invited uh, in the Netherlands, where I live, to do a war memorial concert. That is usually Second World War memorial concert here in the Netherlands. And it was during the Kosovo War. So we did actually a concert dedicated to victims of wars going on at that moment. Um, it was a very moving concert, as you once in a while are lucky to have as a musician, where, where people, all audience and performers, all have the same kind of sense of intention, I guess. It's a very emotional concert. And afterwards, we were we were sitting talking with a group of the musicians, and one of them said, uh, "Laura, we should." This was a very powerful moment. We should take this concert and put it on a train and send it to Kosovo and stop the war. And that was a kind of um, uh, what would you say light bulb moment or a Zen moment for me, with where where something was said that was actually so impossible. Um, and uh, yeah, crazy idea that I thought, well, let's think about that. 
and started calling people. And um, within a couple of weeks, we had an office and we had a kind of a reception at, a, at an international peace organization and some advice and worked as volunteers for several years. And but the original idea really was to go to war areas, connect with local musicians, and see what we could do to promote reconciliation and stopping war, indeed. So um, how we would do that was not exactly clear, but, um, but, but it's been a, a, a pretty consistent path. If you, if, if you look back, somebody once said to me, you have a very good retroactive strategy. So you can sort of see the steps um, building, starting with exchanges with musicians in the Balkans, who we did in fact find and were in fact interested in connecting and then moving from there to the idea of yeah well going back and forth and sending musicians back and forth is all very nice but it doesn't actually change the situation on the ground how do we connect with local communities and work together for lasting change and on that trajectory we've really been for most of our existence right right i'm interested in how you got there though i mean what did your parents do and how did that affect where you ended up both of my parents were professional peace activists. My parents both worked for an interreligious um, peace and nonviolence organization. Uh, I grew up outside of New York in, an, in a cooperative community, interracial, interreligious living community. So it was a, a very unusual um, American upbringing, I guess you could say. <laughs> but you were primed for it. Yeah, in some ways, yes. And, and um, I mean, my, my father worked with Martin Luther King uh, in, in developing uh, communications tools about the civil rights movement. Um, as a child, I was already on picket lines and demonstrations, and, and, and there was always music. And I loved music, and I, you know, I, I, I took music lessons and, um, and, and became a kind of a, a musician activist, you could say, when I was in a peace or civil rights movement activity, I was always the one leading the music. And when I was a musician, I was always looking for ways to let that music be a way of connecting people and, and pointing to the bigger issues in life. But, and, and so most of my life, I sort of wandered those two paths and, 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 um, and found ways to connect them when possible. And so Musicians Without Borders, looking back at it all, was kind of the coming together of that. Right. So where did the interest in Balkan folk music come from? Well, I guess I grew up uh, singing songs, international folk songs. That's what we did when with, in our community. Uh, somebody played guitar and loved singing and, uh, and nobody had any money. And so we, we did a lot of singing. And at some point I heard, um, uh, I heard uh, actually a, an American group called the Penny Whistlers, who sang this music. And I was just, I think I was in my teens, and I was just riveted by the sounds of the voices, but also by what happened in that music, because the Balkans is, a, of course, a, a cultural crossroads and has been for centuries. And, and, and that has led to clashes, of course, but it's also led to very interesting cultural mixes, including in the music. And the, I think the thing that fascinated me the most was um, the ways in which musical elements from East and West met in that music. 
And then the other thing was the, 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 the use of the voice, especially in, in, the, in the folk music, which is really, you know, country singing, so sort of a strong use of the chest voice and something that enchanted the world later on with the Mystere Bois and that kind of uh, ensemble. But, but uh, I, I just loved that combination. And uh, yeah, when I, as soon as I got to a point where I could actually sing it and bring a group of women together to perform it together, I did that. So how good do you think we are? I mean, having this, uh, this, this history growing up in the civil rights movement and, and uh, starting your own charity to uh, address issues like this, how good are we now? as a society at something like activism? Uh, is this changed? Is it improved? Has it become easier? I think it's becoming more apparent that it's something that needs to happen continuously. I think that the last 40 years, uh, you know, um, when I was young, uh, activism was, well, when I was a child, there were, activism was, was there was a very small uh, amount of activism in the West, um, and and it was quite difficult because I grew up during the Cold War and the McCarthy period and so forth, and um, and and that was that was quite difficult. But we sort of gathering steam, and then into the '60s, and really propelled a lot by music, obviously, and by sort of shift in consciousness of especially young people around the world. And there was an enormous, sort of in the 60s and 70s, of course, an enormous um, growth of, of, of activism, which really brought about a lot of change. And after that, I think that, I, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but maybe people were tired or maybe young people grew up and the next generation sort of felt that everything was basically okay. I think that one of the things that's happening now is we see this rise in right-wing populism and, and neo-fascism really um, in, in our own societies is that people are starting to realize, wait a minute, um, that's not something that you can just assume that things are fine, that, that, uh, that achievements that have been made will always be there. Um, that I, was, I saw a song, I looked it up the other day because I remembered it. Um, I think it was called Freedom is a Constant Struggle. And I think that that's, that's a fact. And I think that people are starting to realize that that's true and that things are not going to steadily improve on their own. There are always people doing work and there are always people doing things, but, but I think you need to keep one foot in the activist shoe, I would say. Right. So you don't imagine a day in which we've won and everything's solved, but the fact that you continue is the, is the point. I don't think that history is linear. <laughs> you know, I, I think that that there are cycles, and you see this very often. And I mean, if you if you think that the you know there were huge movements against um, nuclear weapons, and which one which really put a lot of pressure on on political leaders to work towards accords, and those. That was to some extent happening. That hasn't happened in a long time. And now you see, again, this, this rise of militarism and, um, and, and again, some resistance coming up. But, it, but you know, we, we sort of lost that. I think we lost the, the, the power of activism for a number of decades. And I think it's being rediscovered. And the big question, of course, always is, well... Is, are we on time? That is a really good question. Is that something that you're optimistic about or is it something that uh, that causes you to despair at night? So how do you interpret that? 
Both, I think. Uh, you know, I th there's there's a very interesting um, saying that I kind of hold on to, which is that that hope is is merely the decision to act. Um, I think that we're living in a in a time in which um, you know we're seeing a number of of stories playing out at the same time. On the one hand, you have the the uh, the growth of militarism and and um, and and the use of fear and the spreading of fear as a tool to control people and the growing control um, and the rise of the number of of these uh, uh, yeah. Kind of, what what would you call them? A macho on steroid type of leaders all over the world, and that, and it doesn't seem to be connected to to a political ideology so much as 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 a power power and money and control um, issue. At the same time, I think there have never been so many people who have been aware of the interconnection of all life and the sacredness of life and the need to protect the earth and the environment. I don't think we've ever seen as much of that as there is now. Um, and these are these are playing out at the same time. And so and, and you also see the the, the, the loss of species and, and uh, destruction of rainforests and uh, climate shifts and, and, and the disasters that that's causing at the same time. But you also see people sort of becoming active to it, really proactive uh, to 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 try to protect the earth, and you know, I guess it's lucky that we don't we don't we're not really able to predict the outcome. The history has always been full of surprises, um, but I think that it's the the I, I really believe in that the, that that acting is really what hope is. It's acting. It's doing things. It's it's being grounded, it's being able to breathe, it's being able to connect with yourself, and it's also action and agency. And, um, and so, you know, we, we don't control the end, we can only deal with where we are. And even if, you know, whatever happens, I also think this is the best way to live. So <laughs> there, there's not really a choice there. So do you have any particular recommendations about how we should act or just that we act is the important part? Um, I if, well recommendations. I you know I I, I believe that I I told a story recently um, about um, having I was as a young woman I worked for a year for the uh, Vietnamese Buddhist movement during the Vietnam War, and for um, uh, it was uh, an office that was led by Thich Nhat Hanh, um, the Vietnamese Zen master. I don't know if you know him, yeah, yeah. writer, poet, leader of sort of the the. The, the bringing of the concept of mindfulness to the West. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, and I remember in the in a in a period where the um, the Western peace movement was quite divisive, actually, and quite fractured. That at one point he, he said to me, um, "Americans can't be peacemakers until they learn how to breathe." Hmm. Um, and I think that it's it's. It's important to for people to be able to do that. It's important to be able to to ground yourself, to be present, to be present for others, to be present for yourself, and not to be in panic and not to be in stress. And learning how to do that, whether you do it on your own or whether you do that with a group, I think that's very important. And I think it's also important not to leave it there. It's important to then take the step and be active. And my, myself, I. I take a lot from the theory and practice of nonviolence, 
um, referring a lot to the teachings of Martin Luther King. And that includes, so, you know, if for activists, that includes principles such as do no harm. Um, and it in includes stand with those who are oppressed. And it includes being willing to take on suffering and, and to stand for social justice. So those are kind of principles that, that I believe in. And I also believe in, in the idea of, of being grounded in oneself. It's interesting that the, the idea is that in order to be peacemakers, we need to learn how to breathe. And the message is being given to a singer. Uh, and and yes. <laughs> I think that's so that, that's a really interesting thing is to to take the, the kind of the control of the human voice and the use of the human voice through expression and artistic creation, but also, you know, in a choir setting particularly, you've got this, this uh, collaborative co-creation of a singular, you know, shared voice. I, I think there's, there's something at least poetic in that. There, there definitely is, and there's something else about singing and music and voice and bringing that back to the question of war and armed conflict. There's, there's a um, professor of peace studies, and he's also been a negotiator in, in, um, in actual cessation of wars, named John Paul Lederach, and he talks about the issue of voice, um, that often when, when people have been... Um, in a conflict area and the conflict has been settled that they speak about having no voice. And he talks about, usually we understand that as people not having um, a voice in the decision-making, which is one of the problems, of course, in, in you could say, standard um, conflict resolution. Um, but he says there's, there's another issue, which is that um, people who have been through this kind of traumatic situations have often gone through situations which are literally unspeakable. Mm. They've gone through experiences to which they can give no words um, and, and, and for which there are no words because they're so horrible. And that one of the things that music does is it gives a space for the expression of those feelings. And it gives a space for reclaiming um, the rest of who you are other than just being the victim. And I think that's very central to, the, to, to our work is to create that safety space where people can find themselves again in the music and don't have to talk about what happened mm. or don't have to talk about the divisions that are there. And this is one of the things also when we're working in these situations, we never ask people about what they went through. Uh, we never talk about ethnicity. We only talk about music. And we create a space where people are free to experience the, the who they actually are and to connect with people and they make those decisions themselves. And right. that's the way that process works. That's really interesting. That it's both connects with and kind of explains uh, to a certain extent uh, um, something that I experienced. I worked with a charity in India uh, called Music Basti, which brings uh, music workshops to uh, homes for street kids. And, mm. uh, and, and of course, all of the sort of the theory around it about sort of, um, you know, singing, counting, clapping, it was about numerous and literacy and socialization and and all these sorts of things but what we discovered and and what the kids themselves said is uh, you know all, all that's kind of interesting and important and all the rest of it but but when we sing people listen yes and 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 that isn't the case ordinarily we're, we're invisible we're unheard uh, but yes. but when we sing people listen and, and I thought that that's what you've said is kind of 
kind of unpacks that quite quite well. Yes, yes, it's 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 actually giving a voice back to the voiceless, in that way. Right, right. So, do you feel like you've achieved what you set out to achieve, or are, are we? I mean, in terms of the creation of uh, musicians without borders and the infrastructure, and not you know to achieve the objective of world peace, but but um, that it it's set up and it's doing the thing that it's meant to be doing, and it's in the shape that it's meant to be. Um, or is there a kind of a grander objective that uh, you're working towards still? Um, I think we're on the path. Uh, and and I'm, I'm very proud of the organization as it is now. I think you know the the, the projects that we're doing are are um, are true to the goals there, and and the people who are working together are also working as a community, which I, to me is also important. Uh, it's important that we treat each other well. You know, as you hear very often of idealistic organizations where everybody's overworked and everybody's stressed out, and you know. And, and I think it's it's important that we take care of each other. Um, I think we could grow some more, but I I, I think that I'm, I basically sort of trust the organization to um, to grow as as much as it needs to grow. And um, and we are um, we are having an impact beyond our own projects as well because we also, for example, offer trainings at various levels for musicians around the world. Um, in several different countries, so musicians can join us to to uh, spend a week learning the skills that we've picked up and developed over the years, and that way they take them back to their own places and their own projects. And uh, and we're starting to publish more um, articles, and I'm working on a book, and you, you connect with more um, with different sectors, with academics, and with people who are who are active in in other areas with people who are working on the environment. I find it very stimulating and it's a very, it's very challenging to, um, to, to kind of try to guide that growth and make the right decisions. But I, I definitely think we're on, we're, we're on the right path. It was a real struggle for some years when we had no money and nobody knew us and, and nobody seemed to think that this idea was uh, coherent or, or useful. And now suddenly everybody's, or many people are, are realizing the power of the arts and especially music in um, addressing some of these issues. And, and meanwhile, we've been at it for 20 years. So we've become one of, the, one of the leading organizations worldwide and people are looking to us for, um, yeah, sometimes for guidance or for collaboration. And to me, that's, I mean, we're still learning. We're a learning organization, but I think we're, on the path that I would have hoped that we'd be on when it started. Fantastic. Well, we had uh, a trackathon uh, event at Music Tech Fest Stockholm uh, in September 2018. Uh, and as you know, the, the winner, uh, Ruben Svensson, the producer, chose Musicians Without Borders as the uh, as the charity for which the EP that gets released uh, was to raise funds for. So the idea is that uh, the Music Tech Fest community is, is uh, by, by people listening to the track or downloading it, buying it, uh, is contributing to uh, Musicians Without Borders and the, and the project that you're doing. But is there anything else that our community could think about or contribute or, or how could they get involved? You know, what more can we do? It's wonderful already. This is, this is wonderful and we're very grateful for this, obviously, and also grateful for Ruben, to Ruben for having chosen us. Um, I, I think people could sign up for our newsletter, uh, follow what we do. Musicians out there might be interested in 
um, in uh, participating in one of our trainings. Um, obviously, we're always interested in, you know, if people want to contribute some uh, money, we also collect instruments that are in, in um, good shape, which, which we pass on to musicians who have lost their instruments because of war and conflict. So there are many different ways, but I think the best way to find out how would be to visit our website, which is mwb.ngo. Fantastic. Laura, thank you so much for your time today. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Andrew. Laura Hassler, founder and director of Musicians Without Borders. And that's the MTF podcast. You can have a listen to the MTF Splice Trackathon EP and raise a little money for the charity. And you can also get involved, as Laura suggests. Just go to mwb.ngo. Enjoy, make a difference, have a fantastic week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. 